This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Been giving so many talks on Zoom these last few years that it actually feels strange to be talking to a room of real people. Gonna have to get used to it all over again. I thought I would start by reading uh, the opening paragraph from Joko's Everyday Zen. Uh, when I went downstairs to get my old copy of the book, I found in there uh, a couple photos taken, one taken uh, at a session in San Diego, and the other uh, uh, would have been in Grayston uh, with Maizumi Roshi. These pictures of practice must be close to 40 years old. Strange to think that much time has uh, gone by. If uh, people want to take a look at uh, what I looked like with a lot of hair in the old days, we can pass them around afterwards. So this is the beginning of uh, everyday Zen. My dog doesn't worry about the meaning of life. She may worry if she doesn't get her breakfast, but she doesn't sit around worrying about whether she'll get fulfilled or liberated or enlightened. As long as she gets some food and a little affection, her life is fine. But we human beings are not like dogs. We have self-centered minds which get us into plenty of trouble. If we do not come to understand the error in the way we think, our self-awareness, which is our greatest blessing, is also our downfall. Now, I don't think uh, Joko read much Heidegger, but you could use this uh, paragraph as your uh, sort of an introduction uh, for uh, Heidegger for dummies, uh, because one of the ways uh, Heidegger introduces um, the idea of Dasein, which is his word for human being, uh, means being there, being situated in the world. He says uh, Dasein is the one being for whom its being is a problem or is an issue. And this is uh, basically what Joko is uh, saying of the difference between herself and her dog. Uh, the dog doesn't have any issue with how to be a dog. Uh, but human beings get very preoccupied with what does it mean to be a human being, and how do you do it, and how do you do it well? And it, what, what does it mean to uh, screw it up and get it wrong? 
Now this is, uh, we could say, the problem of suffering. And she, you know, makes this basic distinction here between suffering, which is, uh, comes from self-centered preoccupation with uh, things like our human nature or our liberation or our enlightenment, from uh, the kind of problem the dog might have of just not getting enough to eat or not getting any affection. Uh, we obviously will suffer if we don't get those things too, but it seems like we're adding this extra layer, right? Um, now, what the, this immediately raises is whether the solution to our problem is to become more dog-like. And this seems to be an option that a lot of people opt for. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, they don't think they should become like a dog. Sometimes we, they think, maybe I should become like a little child. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to a place of... Uh, simplicity and uh, directness uh, before I developed all these cognitive capacities to create intellectual trouble for myself. And I'll imagine that childhood is this kind of um, words worthy and uh, uh, state of uh, naturalness that has gotten contaminated by adulthood and civilization and I need to uh, return to that in some way. Uh, sometimes we do hear people thinking very much that what we want to do is uh, become natural, like, like the dog or like the uh, fish in the ocean or the bird in the sky, just simply being uh, what we are and doing what we do without any kind of uh, hindrance. And the hindrance is very typically identified uh, with our conceptual minds. Joko here says uh, our self-awareness. And so we um, develop uh, these elaborate uh, disciplines of meditation, of practice, that uh, for a lot of people seem to be designed to uh, free us from conceptualization, free us from thinking, and uh, return us to this uh, state of nature. And of course, uh, in our practice, we have this famous koan that asks, does a dog have Buddha nature? Uh, for most people, the, the question really is, do I have Buddha nature? And if I do, where did it go? Right? Where, where is it? Why can't I find it? And we can say that one of the great obstacles that we encounter is this, is this very uh, particular concept 
of being concept-free. It's sort of one of these strange paradoxes of, uh, of practice, that uh, we, we get it in our heads that our thinking, our concepts, stand between us and the world, and we start creating what's really a whole conceptual fantasy of immediate experience and directness, something that will return us to the, um, what we imagine is the uh, purity and immediacy of our original dog or baby nature, right? And we somehow, metaphorically in our imagination, plug that in for what we think uh, our Buddha nature is. Now, Sartre, in, um, I believe it's in uh, Existentialism as a Humanism, says that uh, because he's an atheist, he doesn't believe in human nature. Uh, and what he means by that is religion uh, provides us with this distinct picture of human nature that we then have to... Uh, uh, work with and within. Uh, and it's actually very much what Joko is presenting in this first paragraph. If you're a Christian, you have a picture of human nature as fallen, uh, a picture of original sin, of uh, perhaps pride, perhaps sexuality, as the thing that has contaminated uh, your basic uh, innocence and that somehow we need a, a faith or a practice of redemption uh, to help us work through this built-in uh, characteristic of what does it mean to be a fallen mortal human being. And Joko is sort of giving you, because she's religious, sort of a, also this kind of picture of human nature. Uh, it's basically in danger of being contaminated by, she says, uh, oh, self-awareness, self-consciousness. Uh, if you look at early Buddhism, you can say the root of suffering is not self-consciousness, but desire or attachment. And there are lots of ways we can talk about those to put desire and self-awareness uh, in sync with each other, primarily through a picture of this desire to control things so that they wouldn't be impermanent. I could have what I want and not have it go away. But in a certain sense, each one of these pictures denies to us the naturalness of the dog. And in one of the strange things of uh, uh, this Zen practice of ours 
is that it's simultaneously this uh, long-term disciplined effort uh, that we make to practice leaving everything alone. In our sitting, what we're really doing is, first of all, sitting still. And sitting still both with our body and our mind. And we can think that the point of the stillness is a kind of um, imperturbability or un. Uh, being unmovable or unflappable by whatever happens. And we can think that our mind is supposed to have a kind of parallel kind of uh, absolute stillness to correspond with our physical stillness. And for some people that turns into the fantasy of having a mind completely quiet, completely free of thought, completely free of emotion. The mind as the clear blue sky or the mirror that is reflects nothing, just pure awareness. In a way, these are all conceptual fantasies that paradoxically are all about being concept-free. Now, we, we engage in this paradoxical practice of leaving everything just as it is and trying to, in some sense, come to terms with our mind as it is, with our life as it is. Because in Joko's terms, we have a powerful sense that this isn't it. And we, we're, there's this strange again, dichotomy that opens up about this notion that this isn't it. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? When Sartre wrote uh, about being in nothingness, nothingness for him was the capacity, this distinctly the human capacity to say this isn't it to negate uh, what is, to imagine that things could be otherwise, Uh, to say that things could be otherwise than they are, it was for him the essence of freedom. And yet, we, are, we struggle to say, what does it mean to stay with things just as they are? And what things should we stay with? And what things are we, should we try to change? When Dogen talks about the identity of practice and enlightenment, 
in a sense he's saying, you don't have to change anything. Zazen itself is the performance of enlightenment, the enactment of enlightenment. He, and he's saying this to people who are already doing it, right? He's saying it to a room full of monks who've been sitting there, you know, day in and day out, year after year, most of them thinking, am I there yet? And he's, you know, saying, yeah, you've arrived. This is already it, right? And, of course, everybody's natural reaction is, uh, I didn't think it was going to be like this. I had something else in mind. Right? Dogen had his own particular picture of this kind of identity of human nature and Buddha nature, practice and enlightenment, such that to live the life of a monk was to return yourself to this dog-like state of being perfectly human, being perfectly Buddha. For him, being a monk was like a fish in the water, a bird in the sky. It was the full exercise of what you are, to just live this life, to sit in Zazen, to realize the impermanence and interconnection of all things. This is your Buddha nature. This is what we practice and act and realize day in and day out in this form of life. What we do here as lay students is something significantly different in that we're not all living one form of life and saying, well, this is it, right? The founding statement of the Lay Zen Teachers Association said that we believe that the Dharma could be fully realized expressed and transmitted in lay life. That there's no particular form of life or training necessary to be a Buddhist, to be in tune with your Buddha nature, to realize who and what we are. And so in that sense, we take on this Sartre and uh, freedom to say, well, it could be otherwise. We don't have to run things here like Dogen ran them in the 13th century Japan. We won't set that up as the real thing and see everything else as sort of a compromise or deviation from authenticity. Authenticity is available to us right now in what we're doing as we do it and a big kind of koan for everybody is, well, can we really experience or trust that this is it? That the real practice isn't, you know, what guys in robes with shaved heads are doing, but what you're doing right here, that this is it just as much?
that we do in our lay practice in this very basic sense is practice with over and over again with the identity of relative and absolute. See, if by absolute we mean a sense of this sense of this is it. Nothing is missing. Nothing is hidden. This is reality, right? Not in comparison to something else. Not lacking this, having too much of that. But wholly, perfectly, completely, just this, right? And where is that to be found? I'll end with a little story from uh, Blue Cliff Records that illustrates this. In the old days, there was a teacher who left the temple behind and went off to be a hermit, lived up on a mountaintop, of, you know, in the area of a few small farmers and villages, but really hid himself away, practiced alone. In order to support himself, apparently he would gather nuts from the surrounding uh, forest and press them to make oil, which he would go down now and then and sell to the farmers in the village. And even though he did his best to uh, be out in the middle of nowhere and uh, uh, be a hermit. One way or another, people somehow heard about this strange guy on the mountain. And inevitably, monks would uh, make pilgrimages to come and try to meet this uh, hermit master. And one day, a monk shows up at the hermitage, sees the old man inside, he comes in, looks at him, just sees an old, what looks like an old peasant. And he says right out to him, you know, I've came all this way on pilgrimage to see a famous Zen master, but all I see is an old man selling oil. The teacher says to him, you only see an old man selling oil. You can't see the Zen master. So the monk says, please, sir, show me the master. And the old man says, oil, oil, who buy my oil? <laughs> <laughs>